Can I rant for a sec? Please. Pay apps are way too public. What happened? Some rando hearted a payment from five months ago, and I realized people can see my entire history, who I'm paying, like full names. It's super weird. Yeah, it's weird. How are you paying your friends then? Apple Cash. It's all in messages. You can literally send cash like a text, and it stays between friends. Random people can't see it. Did you just pay me a dollar on Apple Cash? <laughs> Services are provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Terms apply. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Me. Focus Features presents Back to Black. I want people to hear my voice and just forget their troubles. Experience the music and her story. Know this. I ain't no spy girl. Like never before. That's my daughter. That's my Amy. On the big screen. I want to be remembered. For just being me. Amy Winehouse. Back to Black. Directed by Sam Taylor Johnson. Rated R. Under 17. Not a minute without parent. Only in theaters May 17th. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? Welcome to Stuff Mom Never Told You from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Kristen. And I'm Molly. Molly, the very first business cards that I ever possessed. It's a big milestone to get your first business card. It was a huge milestone. I love seeing my name in print. The very first business cards I had were from my college newspaper. Uh Uh-huh. Because I, for one glorious, magical summer, was the news editor. Aw. And being the summer news editor was really a plum position because the paper only came out once a week. Mm -hmm. And everyone just kind of was always... Slightly drunk and, <laughs> and sunburned, and it was perfect. It so was, did that affect the kind of stories you covered? Sort of. There, de- there was definitely a lot more summer fluff, mm-hmm. but at the same time, as summer closed out, you had to do a lot of prep work for the, the fall semester. That's when the hard-hitting stories would come. And you had uh, stories about, you know, incoming, incoming freshmen, the incoming class, and, and exciting <laughs> hard-hitting news like that. But we took our newspaper very seriously. And you have a journalism degree. Yes, I was in journalism school for four newspapers, which was a very odd choice at the time, considering that newspapers were already on a major decline. But it was fun to work at the newspaper in my, in, in the, in the college town. Uh, and it, it, it was in Athens. I don't know why I'm trying to mask this because in a quick Google search, my name will show that I went to UGA. And in Athens, the college paper there competed pretty evenly mm-hmm. with the town newspaper, the Athens Banner Herald, our arch nemesis. And man, when we would get the scoops on the Banner Herald, it was a banner day. <laughs> At the old red and black. So it was fun. There was this, there was a healthy competition and people actually took us pretty seriously when we would call just because we had a huge circulation compared to the local paper. That's awesome. Yeah. What was the uh, gender breakdown of your newsroom? 
Uh, I would say it was pretty, it was pretty even. The, the editor desks would circulate every semester and you had to apply for them just like you would any job. And there was a pretty good mix of guys and girls. I worked with, uh, both male and female editors and male and female writers. Um, obviously our sports department was skewed more male, but we also had female sports editors, lead mm-hmm. editors, uh, female editors in chief. So yeah, a, a pretty solid gender breakdown. But I do remember one of my, one of my reporting pals was this guy. He, he was, he was a little bit older. He had been in the military and then I was back in school and he was the definition of a hard news journalist. Mm. I mean, he wanted to Bernstein. Oh yeah. He wanted to find the scandal dig up whatever dirt he could and was just such a go-getter. And I really admired him. But it also, to me, highlighted the type of journalism that I am personally not cut out for. Mm -hmm. I believe in a little bit of personal privacy, (laughs) respecting distances when there would be uh, issues when when students would die Mm -hmm. and we would have to do the obituaries and call up people, call up their parents, old teachers. I had to call up an old principal once, talk to their friends. That was the kind of stuff that my that my uh reporting pal mm-hmm. relished in. He was great at that kind of stuff. That was the kind of stuff that turned my stomach and I just wanted to rip it off like a bandaid. Yeah. I hated that kind of hard news. And right, and that right there points to a major gender stereotype that we are going to discuss in this podcast on women in journalism, which is this notion that hard news, more traditional business news, politics, things like that, foreign mm-hmm. affairs, is a male realm, whereas soft news, such as feature stories and lifestyle, and for me in in college, I I my specialty was on homelessness. Mm-hmm. I did a, a huge project on homelessness. That would be considered more of soft news, the lady realm. So let's um real quick, let's say that this is going to be part one of a two part series of women in journalism because there are a lot of stories we could talk about here. And today's focus is sort of the work Kristen did with newspapers, people who were in the trenches, the reporters. And then our next episode is going to be about broadcast journalism and people who are anchoring the news. There's going to be a little bit of crossover between the two because we're going to talk about some TV news reporters. Mm-hmm. But anchors, that's going to be a whole different subject. Right. So you want to talk about some history first before we get into the current gender divides? Yes, let's talk about some history. And the history of women in journalism is so colorful, and there's so many great terms uh, for women. This is coming from a chapter in a book entitled American Journalism, and this is by Carolyn Kitsch, and she wrote a chapter called Women in German Journalism. Obviously very helpful for today's podcast. <laughs> so why don't we start out, Molly, with stunt reporters and sob sisters? This is where women really start to take off, because... Uh, this is during the uh, Hearst and Pulitzer era, very sensational early journalism in the United States. And these male editors say, you know what? You know what sells the papers? Mm-hmm. Gals do. Gals doing crazy things. Yeah. So this is um, if you've ever heard of Nellie Bly, she's sort of the the epitome of this kind of stunt reporter. Where she did around the world race in 1890 with the with another reporter from a, from a rival paper. But it's things like going undercover in a factory to report on the working conditions, 
treatment of women in jail, going undercover like on a night with prostitutes to see what they're dealing with, going mm-hmm. in an insane asylum. Uh, these kind of big stunts that you can, you know, splash across your front page for a week, you know, saying, oh, someone did this. And what's interesting is there were men doing stunt reporting at the same time, but it was called muckraking. Yes. So right away, we've got sort of a gender difference in terms of how the stunt reporting is perceived. When women do it, it's one thing. When men do it, it's another thing. And it's usually more um, newsy when a man does it. Right. There would be a little more reporting, straightforward reporting with men, whereas these sob sisters and stunt reporters would be writing more in a prose style. Yeah. And so the sob sister, that term comes about because they're trying to get women who are reading this paper to sympathize with their subject. Um and, you know, you were talking about how you liked homeless issues, Kristen, like these yes. these social issues were big for the sob sisters because they'd be, you know, they'd, they'd buddy up to a prostitute and get her sad tale of woe and how she ended up this way. Or they would talk to the wife of a accused murderer and that sort of stuff mm-hmm. really sold papers, but it kind of relegated women to just one corner of the newspaper. But even in as early as the 1920s, there, there was a course at, uh, Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism, which is one of the, the best J schools in the country on journalism for women. And I think it's worth noting that, uh, the professor, a, a lady, Ethel Brazelton said, it's because of the added value of such rep- reporting that the woman reporter, the woman writer endowed by nature with certain distinctive and valuable qualities and capabilities is in the field to stay. And this is in the 1920s. So while, yes, we are, we're already recognizing this kind of difference between reporting styles with men and women, with women taking a little more of the softer angle. It's often said that in interviewing styles, women are able to, I don't know, uh, get more out of subjects. Since you know, the better listener. The yes. better communicators. Yes. Um, empathy is a word we've mentioned a lot mm-hmm. that women stereotypically are perceived as having more empathy. So, I mean, I was actually kind of surprised, Kristen, when you were talking about how you didn't like to call up like principals of, of dead students, because <laughs> that would probably be something, you know, stereotypically that they would think that a woman would like to do sort of a sob story. Sort of. Yeah. But it was like, I don't know, maybe maybe it's also just I think it's also just me because they were I should say plenty of women also in that newsroom, and this is just in college too, but there were other students I worked with who were just as dogged as that, that yeah. guy that I was talking about who could go and they could make those uncomfortable. For me, it was just, it was just an uncomfortable phone uncomfortable, call yeah. to make on a Sunday afternoon. <laughs> right. But you know, what's kind of interesting about this field is that pretty early on, women in journalism do really well. There's large numbers of them. It kind of fluctuates with wars when mm-hmm. the men go off to war. More and more women enter the field. They might lose the job when the men come home. But it's always been a career where women were pretty well represented. Um, and, you know, if you watch any old movies like His Girl Friday, there's always that snappy girl reporter. Oh, yeah. So, um, you know, those movies very early on were putting women in in plum roles as journalists. And even in wartime coverage, for instance, I didn't realize this uh, during World War Two. Not only do we have 127 uh, credentialed female journalists who could cover the war and New York Times colonist Anne O'Hare McCormick interviewed Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin and Churchill. Yeah. So, they, I mean, that's quite a quite a leading role. Yeah. And even before that, to back up just a, a brief time before World War II, Eleanor Roosevelt did a huge favor to lady journalists because in the 1930s and early 40s, she says, I'm going to have press conferences, but the only people who can cover them are women. 
So all these newspapers who didn't have any women on staff all had to scrounge around and find a woman. And it really uh, put women in this leading role. I mean, to to be the only people who can access the first lady, mm-hmm. especially one as active as Eleanor Roosevelt. Huge deal. So they called them Eleanor's girls. So even though we have uh, Eleanor's girls and these women in World War II going out and taking on these very impressive assignments, by and large, a lot of the women's content was relegated to a ladies page. Mm-hmm. But then with second wave feminism, we can't talk about the history without bringing up second wave feminism. Uh, some papers, major papers such as the LA Times and the Washington Post start realizing that, you know what, maybe these ladies only sections are a tad outdated. And that's where we get the evolution of the style section. Mm -hmm. You know, New York Times is a very popular style section. That comes from this old women's news era. But here's an interesting note that we got from this article on women in American journalism, was that second wave feminist activists were disgruntled with the editors of the women's pages, because obviously this change could not come overnight, saying papers were not going to say, okay, we're going to do away with these women's pages, everything style, and we'll move women's content to more general interest areas. No. The uh, second wave feminists were were annoyed, even though the women editors might be kind of... Uh, couldn't couldn't help what was going on at the time. They still wanted to report on these gender issues, mm-hmm. but... The feminists were insulted that they were going to be, they were going to remain in the women's only section. Kind of an interesting thing that comes up, such as when we were talking about this a similar issue with the Home Ec podcast. Yeah, it's amazing. Sometimes the the second wave feminists get a little too disgruntled for their own good. They do. <laughs> um, so yeah, we get the transition into a style section, but more and more women, like Kristen, go and get their journalism degrees. Uh, numbers are about equal. If, if not more female skewed of people graduating for, with a journalism degree. Yes. Today there are definitely more women with, uh, getting, getting journalism degrees than men. And we have some stats from this Kitsch article that are from the mid 1990s. So they're a little bit dated, but it just shows how, you know, how this has always been sort of a, a gender equal career in my, in my imagination. One in three, one in every three front page newspaper bylines in the country was by a woman and one in five newsroom managers was female at the time that Kitsch is writing again in the 90s. The only really breakdown she sees are in uh, owners of newspapers. Those are definitely more male skewed. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, the only time you really see this breakdown in terms of gender bias and gender issues today in journalism is sort of this attitude in the newsroom. People are still saying there are many essays you can find about how it's still really hard to be a female news reporter in a modern newsroom because there might be um, an editor who doesn't want to promote you because you're covering the quote-unquote softer issues. Mm-hmm. They might not want to give you the hard politics beat. They might not want to give you a sports reporter option. There are a lot of um, gender stories about sports reporting and and uh, and women and men and whether they can go into the locker rooms and whatnot. But let's throw out a few um, few opinions about that, Kristen. Yes. Um, well, I think I think there is there's a good point to be made that the hard news triumvirate of business economics and foreign news are really the high status beats. Mm-hmm. Those are more respected because, you know, it, there's just perhaps more analysis involved. There are more difficult phone calls to make and things like that. Um, 
But that's not to say that the softer issues don't appeal to readers as well. And it has been a problem of pigeonholing women into the um, into the softer issues. Well, I mean, you think about I mean, I, I love the movie All the President's Men, which is two guys uncovering, you know, the story that brings down a president. And we don't have as many great inspirational movies about someone covering, for example, homelessness issues <laughs> and suddenly solving the problem of homelessness. Right. But there's this question that comes up in these in these essays about what kind of news do people want to read? And if you do have a woman who's really skilled at bringing homeless issues in a way you can understand them and relate to them, is that a more valid news story than, you know, something else? People are saying, is there this feminization of the news going on? Well, I don't think that we need to worry so much about the um, the validity of a topic, but rather how it's presented. If a male and female journalist are standing side by side, it's not going to matter a hill of beans whether it's being presented more feminized or not. The, pr- the issue is with objectivity, and I think mm-hmm. that that's what people need to focus on. And there was um, a study that we found on the gendered newsroom culture by Cindy Elmore, where she talked to a lot of veteran reporter, female reporters, and a lot of these women did express disgruntlement as, like you said, uh, this this macho culture. But I would like to go back and see a study a little more updated to see how maybe online media mm-hmm. has changed this. Um, you know, the fact that newspapers are crumbling, people are scrambling, the entire model is shifting. And I think that now is a time when a lot of women um, are making a name for themselves because they have realized that, you know, something needs to change, that our voices and our opinions are just as valid and need to be heard as much as male voices and opinions. Well, that's a really interesting lead into one of the topics I wanted to discuss, Kristen, and that is the op-ed page and this idea of female confessional journalism, because yes. there was this um, piece in The Guardian that got uh, a bit of coverage uh, in 2009 that was about how um, if you see a, a sort of a long rambling story about a woman's relationship with her body or her children or her spouse or or things like that, very um, stereotypically female issues. It's called female confessional journalism. And the Guardian piece just sort of put these down and said, you know, this is this is fluff. This yeah. is not going to ever advance the cause of women in journalism. And people had to go back and look at all these male journalists who write very similar types of stories. I mean, you know, Christopher Hitchens writes a lot about his experiences with certain things. There were men who wrote about uh, especially when uh, AIDS first started getting into the mainstream media, who wrote about dying from AIDS. Mm-hmm. And that was somehow deemed more newsworthy than, um, you know, a woman writing in today's, you know, day and age about a problem that, you know, to her is just as important. And it was about how these pieces are viewed differently based on a male writer versus a female writer, while at the same time, female writers are not uh, represented well on op-ed pages because they say women can't formulate these analytical opinions that they can just write the fluff pieces. And it's, it's sort of interesting if we look at this, um, at this kind of journalism, you know, opinion based journalism, are the women showing up in the right way? Well, yeah. I, and I, and the thing is, I, I don't think that this is an issue of the sexist male editors not wanting to see a female byline and thinking that women can't formulate opinions. Um, one of the major reasons why Stanford University started the op-ed project after it realized that between 80 and 90 percent of the newspaper's opinion essays are written by men is the fact that a lot of women are frankly uncomfortable voicing those arguments mm-hmm. and um, calling themselves experts in certain certain areas. We are, I mean, by and large, we, we are just far less um, uh, 
confident. Yeah, well, less confident and less quick to jump up to the bat and toss in our opinion as men are. And I will say this, um, just in terms of from, from my experience as a reporter, not just in college, you guys. I'm not only talking about when I was 20, um, six long years ago. Uh, but even, even now, um, I find that men are, when I send out, um, requests for sources, men are typically faster to respond. Yeah, but I mean, that's the thing about female confessional journalism. Are we only thinking that, and I mean, we as just sort of the collective female group, um, are we only considering ourselves experts in terms of like our bodies, our homes? Right. You know, why aren't we, that's a question we all need to answer is we're all experts on something. Right. Is a fluff, quote unquote, fluff piece about your relationship with your body any less authoritative than some guy's opinion on who's going to take Kentucky in the next presidential election. Exactly. And and I also think it's important to not um, constantly di- divide issues between like, oh, well, if it's about your body, then this is a woman's issue. If mm-hmm. it's about your business, then it's a man's issue. Because female journalists have done an excellent job since, you know, the days of World War II and before then with the Saab sisters and all that, showing that we can report hard news just as well as men can. And I think that there's no better way to demonstrate this than with female wartime reporters. And we can't talk about women reporters without talking about Laura Logan, because while, um, yes, we can go into the front lines and report just as well as a man or as a man can, there are undoubtedly more issues that we have to face in dealing with that. And number one would be sexual assault, which is obviously the issue that um, has kept Laura Logan in the in the news for the past few months. Um, if you don't know, she was in Egypt during all the uh, riots. The day that Hosea McBarg stepped down, she was, quote, surrounded by a dangerous element amidst the celebration and suffered a brutal and sustained sexual assault and beating at the hands of a mob, which was how CBS put it. And, um, you know, We'll leave alone sort of the the politics of the attack, but it mm-hmm. led a lot of people to question whether female reporters should be in war zones or whether, you know, this was just the wrong place for her to be, even if it was the leading news story of the day. Mm-hmm. And she came back out even after the attack and said, women can't stop going to these places right. that, um, yeah, that if there's a story to be told, journalists are going to want to be there regardless of the danger. And, you know. Plenty of male journalists have been hurt or killed uh, in reporting war stories and reporting, uh, you know, on on the tragic news of the day. But no one ever says, let's pull out all the male journalists. Yeah. And I do think that that sort of goes back to that Cindy Elmore paper we were talking about, um, about the quote unquote patriarchal newsroom culture. And I'm not saying it's a patriarchal system that wants to keep Laura Logan out of Egypt, but this idea that men can cover this hard, dangerous news. And women can be at home talking about, you know, salmonella found in the chicken. <laughs> well, and I think that uh, or they would be, you know, the ones that Walter Reed talking to the wounded soldiers who have come home. Yeah. Um, but I, I also think that it's worth noting that Laura Logan was not she wasn't just out on her own, like hanging out in Tahrir Square yeah. asking for, you know, like in, in the midst of a giant mob by herself. She had a bodyguard. She had producers. Um, it was, you know, it, it was something no one could have 
predicted. But one of the one of the the main issues that this is highlighted is is the fact that these female reporters don't want to bring up the sexual assault issue. Mm-hmm. This it's a huge that Laura Logan broke this quote unquote code of silence because they don't want to be perceived as weaker or more vulnerable than their male counterparts. Right. This is not the first time a female journalist has been attacked. Right. This is the first time a notable female journalist is talking about it. And actually, there was a, a BBC piece about it that said that, you know, the best thing that can come out of it is just more training for female reporters sure. because you can't be trained on how to prevent this kind of thing if no one knows it's happening. So possibly the best thing we can happen that can happen is a female journalist who wants to go to these these hot spots can learn the best ways to prevent it. Um, that's not going to always prevent it. Mm-hmm. You can't control a dangerous situation, but you know, the, the lesson to take away is let's learn how to prevent it, but let's not prevent it by taking all the women out of the, out of the situation. Exactly. It's all about providing, providing resources. And half the time, you know, if you do have, if it is true that all these, these newsrooms are run by men and it's not because, uh, middle management, especially with broadcast news is largely made up of women these mm-hmm. days. Uh, but they just might not know to provide those resources and that training in the first place. And while it might seem like, um, watching <laughs> Laura Logan on 60 minutes talk in graphic detail about what happened, uh, it would be a scare tactic away from girls to go into journalism and especially to go into hard news journalism and, and wartime um, coverage and photography and all of that. Uh, just I, I encourage people to watch her because the strength and bravery that she demonstrates and not only just talking about it in a public forum, but also her resolve to get back mm-hmm. in the game and get back reporting, I think um, only demonstrates just how incredible women are in news reporting. And as we've learned with this history of journalism, that's not anything new. I mean, it's not like um, while she is an exceptional woman, she's not an exception among women journalists because we do have this really long history of women who have been there and covered the story. And even though you do come across these pieces about what does a female byline mean versus a male byline mean, it, um, I don't think the divide is there as much in other professions we've highlighted on this podcast. Mm-hmm. I do think that, um, by and large, you know, from the beginning, we've had a really nice representation in this field. And I hope that continues and we don't get ghettoized to, I mean, if you want to cover the style, we're not de- demeaning style right. versus hard news. Right. But don't let an editor put you in a hole that you don't want to be put in. Yeah. And I think that, um, I think that online journal, journalism, or sorry, online media, I should say, is revolutionizing all of this because the entire industry is changing and more voices are coming to the table than ever before, thanks to blogging. So it's going to be interesting to maybe even in two, three, four years, come back and have this same conversation and see what has happened. So that's part one. We talked about reporters, newspaper, broadcast a little bit, but get ready for next time when we're going to talk about anchors. The anchors. So if you want to watch Anchorman in between now and the next podcast, be a good time. Yeah, be great. Be great. Or if you want to uh, just catch a few evening news episodes, you'll be all ready. Yeah. And in the meantime, shall we do some listener mail? Let's do some listener mail. I have one here from Christine, and it has some James Bond recommendations, Christine, because I don't know if you remember on the Female Spy podcast, it came out that I've never seen a James Bond movie. Not a single one. And Christine gave me the top five films that she'd recommend, which um, she says, you know, it has a different Bond actor in each. I can get a flavor of all of them. And I'll just share the recommendations with everyone in case anyone's in the same boat I am, or you can argue it out on Facebook. Her top five Bond films are number one, Goldeneye. 
Have you seen that one, Kristen? I think so. Yes, I have. Number two, Goldfinger. Yes. Number three, The Spy Who Loved Me. No. Four, Casino Royale. Maybe. Five, The Living Daylights. I've not seen that. Okay, so those are her recommendations. You guys let me know if you disagree, agree, whatever. Well, I've got the touche to that email, and this is from Sarah, and she says, Molly, don't waste a minute watching any of the James Bond films because life is too short. The books were lame, <laughs> ditto the movies, and while they can, they may be lame in a camp, retro, or ironic way, they're still lame. While lame movies can be fun, not these. I'm in my mid-50s, a feminist mother of four, and just to let you know, I love your chemistry, your topics, and your podcast. Keep it up, but you know one thing she does not like, and that is James Bond. <laughs> so now I'm torn. What do I do? Um, You are a woman, and you know what we would say to you? It is not up to us to dictate your actions. You gotta choose your choice, girl. That's true. All right. Well, guys, if you have feedback on James Bond, women in journalism, anything really, we'd love to hear from you. We've got a Facebook page where you can share your ideas. Um, It's called Stuff I Never Told You. (laughs) We've got a Twitter where you can share your ideas. It's at MomStuffPodcast. We have an email address where you can share your ideas. It's MomStuff at HowStuffWorks.com. Or if you want to share your ideas in the form of a blog comment... We have a blog. It's called Stuff Mom Ever Told You, and it's at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. To learn more about the podcast, click on the podcast icon in the upper right corner of our homepage. The HowStuffWorks iPhone app has arrived. Download it today on iTunes. Brought to you by the reinvented 2012 Camry. It's ready. Are you? This episode is brought to you by PNC Bank, who believes some things in life should be boring, like banking. Because boring is safe and responsible, level-headed and wise. All things you want your bank to be. You don't want your bank to be cool or sexy. Sexy is for 80s hair bands, not banks. That's why PNC Bank strives to be boring with your money so you can be happily fulfilled with your life. PNC Bank, brilliantly boring since 1865. Brilliantly Boring Since 1865 is a service mark of the PNC Financial Services Group, Incorporated. PNC Bank, a national association, member FDIC. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah! Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Live Nation presents Concert Week. Now through May 14th, get $25 tickets to over 5,000 shows. That's up to 75% off a summer full of your favorite artists like 21 Savage, Alanis Morissette, Cage the Elephant, Celeste Barber, Dirk Bentley, Fade, Hootie and the Blowfish, Janet Jackson, Kids Bob Kids, Megan Trainor, Bissell Puma, Sarah McLaughlin. Get tickets to more than 5,000 summer shows for just $25. Until now through May 14th. Visit LiveNation.com slash Concert Week to learn more and plan your summer with Sean Paul, Sum 41, 30 Seconds from Mars, oh, and Two Door Cinema Club.